You are listening to the Life Community Church Sermon Podcast. Life Community is a church for the city, making much about the name of Christ. This podcast is available through all major platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. If you enjoy and are challenged by our teaching, we invite you to subscribe to the channel on whatever platform you choose as we seek to anchor ourselves to the unchanging truth of God's Word together. Thanks for listening. to be with you this morning. I am grateful to Pastor Steve and the leadership of Life Community for entrusting me with this opportunity this morning. If you have your Bible, I'm going to encourage you to turn with me to Colossians chapter 4, and we're going to look at a, just a few verses, chapter 4, verses 2 to 6. This is uh, as you're turning there, and if, if you don't have it, you can watch on the screen here because these verses will come up for you as well. But um, This is an epistle, uh, just a short little uh, letter uh, that Paul wrote, just four chapters. He wrote this while imprisoned in Rome. Uh, It's considered one of the prison epistles, one of the four letters that he wrote from prison, together with Philemon, Philippians, and Ephesians. And uh, the the book can kind of be, this little letter can kind of be divided pretty neatly into into two halves. The first two chapters deal with doctrine. Um, uh, They focus heavily on doctrine, confronting the false Uh, teachings of ceremonialism and of Gnosticism. Ceremonialism, of course, taught that that salvation could be gained um, by obeying or observing the ceremonial law. Gnosticism uh, taught uh, or denied, I should say, Christ's human nature and taught that salvation could be obtained through some secret form of knowledge that humans could transcend evil and the corruption of this world um, on their own merit through their own strength. Now, Paul warns them uh, in chapter 2 uh, not to be taken captive uh, by these, what he called, hollow and deceptive philosophies. And he counters these heresies in these first two chapters by exalting Christ as the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, as the preexistent creator and sustainer of all things, and as the head of the church. And also, in chapter 2, he declares, for in Christ all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. So that's kind of the first half. And then the, the second half, chapters 3 and 4, deal not so much with doctrine, but with our practice. Um, with holy living, and he admonishes us in these second, uh, the second section, if you will, to put on the virtues of compassion and honesty and humility and so forth. And so here, what we're going to look at in these verses, again, chapter 4, verses 2 to 6, he's specifically focusing on our witness to a watching world, on our gospel witness to a watching world. This is, of course, an incredibly relevant subject. Um, uh, In a world that is becoming increasingly hateful, uh, mean, uh, cold-hearted, where civility is now, I should say incivility, is now being celebrated, where um, conversations over moral issues or spiritual issues uh, have sort of uh, dissolved into nasty games of gotcha, where cancel culture seeks to destroy anyone who disagrees with whatever politically correct truth is being pushed at the moment. In this world, you and I are called to be different, to be Christ-like. Now, Paul's writing specifically to a certain group of people. He's writing to Christ's followers. I hope that's all of you, but I realize it probably isn't. But that's who he's writing to here. The context here is he's writing to believers, and he understands very well, the Apostle Paul understands very well, Um, the challenges of living faithfully in a culture that is hostile to Christ and hostile to the gospel. And so what he does is in in these verses that we're going to look at is he gives four commands 
four commandments, if you will, that should govern, govern our witness and our conversations with those who don't know Christ. And then after we go through those, I'm going to share very quickly at the end four sort of quick um, what I believe will be helpful strategies for helping us make the most of our opportunities and of our conversations. So let's dive right in. Here's the first commandment that he gives. Verse 2. He says, devote yourself to prayer. Devote yourself to prayer, being watchful and thankful. Now, we all know that Paul was a man of action, um, but he was also a man that was deeply devoted to prayer. And his prayer life was marked by gratitude and by thankfulness. And um, this despite his intense prolonged uh, suffering that he endured, the hardship that he endured in his uh, missionary travels. And he wanted the Colossians to be thankful as well. And, and this is the third time, actually, in this little epistle that he visits this theme of thankfulness. He does so in Colossians 2, verses 6 and 7, where we read, Continue to live your lives in Christ, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. So there's that theme of thankfulness again. He also does this in, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 15, where he says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to be, you were called you were called to peace, and he says, and be thankful. So we're called to be thankful in our prayer lives. We're also called to be watchful. Now, it's a little unclear what Paul's getting at here. Maybe watchful in an anticipatory, sort of in an anticipatory sense, watchful in the sense that we're trusting he's going to actually hear our prayers, that he's going to answer them. Or perhaps watchful simply in the sense that we must be careful not to become complacent or lazy in prayer. And uh, that's a good reminder for all of us, isn't it? Um, he says this in verse 3, continuing on. He says, and pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message, so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Our prayers reveal what's important to us, don't they? It's interesting to me that Paul is in chains. He's imprisoned um, because of his commitment to Christ, because of his preaching the gospel. And yet he doesn't ask the Colossian church to pray that God will open the door of his cell so that he can escape, so that he can get out. Instead, he asks them to open a door for an opportunity, a door for our, what he calls our message, so he can proclaim what he refers to as the mystery of Christ. This is the fourth time that he references the mystery of Christ. He does this also in chapter 1, verse 25, where he spoke of having been commissioned to present them with the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for the ages but is now disclosed. Now, we know that that mystery is a reference to Christ. We know that because just a couple of verses later in verse 27, chapter 1, verse 27, he writes of the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you. And then he does a similar thing in chapter 2, verse 2, where he expresses his desire for the Colossians to experience the true knowledge of God's mystery that is Christ himself in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Christ is our great treasure. Um, and in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He, I like this phrase, and I want to lift this out for a minute. He says, he prays that, that God will open a door for our message. What an intimate, personal way of referring to the gospel, our message, um, of which Christ, of course, is the centerpiece. And he does this, a similar thing when he writes to, this, to the uh, Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians and also to the Thessalonian believers in First and in 2 Thessalonians, where he refers not to our message, but he refers to our gospel, our, go our gospel, which is an interesting language because we think of this as Christ's gospel. But for anybody who's been impacted by it, it becomes personal. It becomes our gospel. 
our message, our gospel. And Paul wants to see this message, this gospel advanced. And so we go to verse 4 where he says, pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. It was always Paul's heart to proclaim the gospel. Now, I realize some of you are sitting there, maybe many of you are sitting there this morning and going, I'm not a preacher. I'm not a pastor. This isn't what I do. But we're all called to share God's word, aren't we? We're all called to share the gospel. And it was always Paul's heart to do that. It didn't matter where he was at. If he was in the marketplace, marketplace, he was preaching the gospel. If if he was in the synagogue, he was preaching the gospel. And now he's in prison and, and praying for more opportunities to do just that. We read in Romans 15, 20, it is, where Paul, again, writing, he said, it, is, it has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. He stated in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that he did so not with eloquence or with human wisdom. And he said that his preaching was not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of God's spirit and of power. But it was always his desire. He wasn't eloquent. Um, Perhaps wouldn't be invited into a lot of churches in America today. He wasn't an eloquent speaker. But he did speak with the power of God's word and the power of God's spirit working in his life. And it was Paul's great desire to preach it clearly. Boy, that's a value that needs to be adopted by the evangelical church in America today, to preach it clearly. He charged Timothy in, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Preach the word in season and out of season with careful instruction. This was of great concern to Paul. Paul prayed for opportunities to share the gospel, even while in prison for having shared the gospel. What are we praying about? What are you praying about? What are you asking of God? Because what, because what you're asking of God says a lot about what you believe about God and what you value. Here's the second commandment. Verse 5. He says, be wise in the way that you act toward outsiders. Of course, who are the outsiders? Well, those are Christians, fellow Christians, brothers in Christ, sisters in Christ, believers. I'm sorry, forgive me. Outsiders are non-Christians, unbelievers, not believers in Christ. He says, be wise in the way that you act toward them. Why? Why would we need to be wise? Well, for a couple of reasons, at least. One of the reasons is because of who we are, and one of the reasons is simply because of what we represent or who we represent. Who are we? 2 Corinthians 5.20, we are Christ's ambassadors. And I love the language that Paul uses there when he writes that epistle. He says, we are Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us, which is, I think, the great understatement of scripture, because that's exactly what he's doing is he's making his appeal through us. We are his ambassadors. We were bought at a price, 1 Corinthians 6. We are no longer our own, 1 Corinthians 7. We represent another king and another kingdom. So that's who we are. Now, what have we been called to? Well, we've been called to a difficult task. An incredibly difficult task, the ministry of reconciliation. Again, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We are about helping outsiders become insiders. That's what we're called to do. Now, this is difficult for a variety of reasons. One of the reasons is because you and I are the spiritual oddballs of society. You may not like that language, but it's not really mine. It's Peter's, who described us as strangers and aliens. We don't fit. We live here, but this is not our ultimate home. We are just passing through. And the world thinks we are weird, and they're probably right. Um, I remember when I first, first came to faith in Christ, I'm here with my wife and my, and my youngest daughter, Catherine, today, and my wife actually led me to Christ back in 1983. And I remember the very next morning, that was on a Saturday, uh, Saturday, September 10th, 1983, the very next morning I was with Barb in church where her dad was the pastor. I married into royalty, married the pastor's daughter. And I remember, and I'd been in churches before, but I remember thinking how incredibly weird it was but how enticing it was. 
to see the love, the community, um, the brotherhood. But they think we're weird. Worse than that, unbelievers have heard bad things about us. If they've been watching CNN or MSNBC, they've heard that we're judgmental, that we're hateful, that we're homophobic, xenophobic, everything phobic. This is what they've been taught, that we're self-righteous. It's also difficult because as Jesus taught in, chapter, in John chapter 3, verse 19, men love darkness because their deeds are wicked, because their deeds are evil. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, that the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they can't see the light of the gospel or the glory of Christ. Galatians 5.11 says that our cross is an offense to them. It is offensive to them. Our message, using Paul's language here in, in, second, or in Colossians 4, is according to 1 Corinthians 1.18, foolishness to those who are perishing. Peter writes, they think it's strange. Unbelievers think it's strange that you do not plunge into the, the same flood of dissipation that they do. They think you're weird because you don't laugh at the jokes that they laugh at, because you don't watch the movies that they watch. They don't understand us. Jesus said this in John 15, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. We see this all around us today. Now, I don't want to be melodramatic about this. This is not North Korea. This is not Iran. But we are seeing the temperature rise against Christians and against the gospel in this land, are we not? We are being despised more and more. Our culture is growing increasingly hostile to the gospel and to anyone who shares it. Evangelism. Simply sharing the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is now perceived by a growing number of Americans as forcing our religion on others. It's considered hateful, highly offensive. And I don't know how many of you remember this, but in, in, in 2009, uh, you'll remember, at least those of you uh, who are my age or older or even a little bit younger than me, you, you will remember in 2009 when uh, Tiger Woods, uh, the scandal broke out that he was having multiple affairs on his wife cheating on his wife and his children, by the way, because you can't cheat on your wife without cheating on your kids, too. He got caught, and this became a huge scandal, and Fox News did a little panel where they, they had several people on this panel, four or five people. You can watch this on YouTube, by the way. And one of the panelists was Britt Hume, and they were talking primarily um, about the effect that this scandal was going to have on Tiger's golf game. But Britt Hume took a little bit of a different tact with it. He said, well, I'm pretty sure that Tiger's golf game will recover. But what won't recover is his relationship with God and his family. And what he needs is Jesus Christ. And he had the boldness to say this. He said, my understanding is that Tiger ad adheres to Buddhism. But Buddhism can't provide that kind of forgiveness. Only Jesus Christ can do that. Now, Britt wasn't obnoxious. He was gracious. He was measured in his words. But he was excoriated in the press for the next several days over that. Who are you, Britt Hume? To claim that Jesus Christ told the truth when he said, I am the way, the truth, and life, and no man comes to the Father except through me. How dare you? How dare you? This is considered proselytizing now. And that was 13 years ago. It's only gotten worse since then. The deck is stacked against us. Now, I don't mean to whine this morning. I'm not whining. I'm saying this to make the point that we have a great need to be wise in the way that we act toward outsiders. We need wisdom. Jesus said, I am sending you out like wolves. Or I'm sorry, sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes. Wise. He also said that we need godly character because we're also to be innocent as doves. 
Earlier in this book, in, in this epistle, Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 5 and, and following through some of those verses, we read these words. Put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, and instead clothe yourselves with compassion, with kindness, with humility, with gentleness and patience. Forgive as the Lord forgave you, and over all these virtues, put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. If we are not careful, the harshness that we're seeing in our culture, the hatefulness, will rub off, and we will become like them in our responses to those who challenge, the, challenge our faith. We are our brother's keeper. We read this in 1 Peter 2.2. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. We have a moral duty not only to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, but to outsiders. Paul is deeply concerned about our witness and how we interact with those who do not know him. His heart was always for lost people, for outsiders. In Philippians 3, we read this, For as I have often told you before and now say again, even with many tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. He said this in Romans 9, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I, wish, or for I, I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. What a statement. I have to believe that Paul didn't really mean that, that that was hyperbole, but nonetheless, what a statement to say, I wish that I would be cut off from heaven for the sake of my brothers that they might come to know him. 2 Corinthians 5.14, Paul writes, for Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. You cannot be faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ and have no love in your heart for lost people. There's no place in the Christian life for not caring what others think about us or think of us. We must care deeply. Now, while we shouldn't be obsessed uh, with some insecure desire to be liked, we should be deeply concerned with being likable. Because if we're going to be heard, if our gospel is going to be heard, people need to find us likable. They need to find us as the kind of people that they want to be around. It's common to hear somebody say, well, I don't really care what anybody thinks about me. In fact, we often hear this said adoringly of others. Oh, Joe, he doesn't care what anybody thinks about him. As if that's something to be proud of. You know, Joe's his own man. No, Joe is immature. Joe is arrogant, and Joe is foolish. That's what Joe is. He's not to be emulated. He's certainly not to be revered. 2 Corinthians 6.3, we put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. Let's move to the third commandment that Paul gives. He says, make the most of every opportunity. The latter part there of verse 5, make the most of every opportunity. The King James Version, if you have that, says, redeem the time. This comes from the Greek word that means to buy something up, to buy up the time. It was actually used in New Testament times um, of buying up slaves in order to release them. In other words, abolitionists, if you will, would buy up slaves to free them, to set them free. And it's the same word that's used for that. Christ is our redeemer. He redeemed us from the curse, Galatians 3, and from the empty way of life, 1 Peter 1. He bought us back, if you're a follower of Christ, that is, and he set us free according to Hebrews chapter 9. He is our ransom payment. And we are to be little redeemers in the sense that we're redeeming the time, making the most of our opportunities. Each of us has a very brief window of opportunity. We live for a very short time. Time is a rich commodity. James 
so that our lives are like a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Job says that our days are swifter than the weaver's shuttle. I'm sure many of you have stories similar to mine, but in, in 2001, I was diagnosed with stage four cancer. Um, at that time, we had four children. We have five now, uh, but we had four children. Our oldest was 13 at the time. Our youngest was five. Now, I, I knew where I was going, but it was still a pretty scary time for us as a family. It was a very difficult time. But I'm grateful for that experience in my life. I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. I know it sounds cliche to say that, but I wouldn't. But I'm so grateful for it because it made me realize just more, it made me more acutely aware of just how brief it is, this, this short time we have on this earth to make an impact that will last for all of eternity. This urgency of buying up time for the sake of our witness is a repeated theme with Paul. In Ephesians 5.15, he writes this, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity. Why? Well, he says why there, because the days are evil. And we could add, and because the days are short. And it's true, it was true in Paul's day, and it's true in ours as well. Our society is becoming increasingly more godless. We're seeing it all around us. That's no surprise to any of you. Our moral foundations as a nation are under attack. We are losing our ability, rapidly losing our ability to self-govern. The love of most, as Jesus, as Jesus predicted in, in Matthew 24, the love of most is growing cold. And we grieve over this. I grieve over this. I'm sure I'm speaking for many of you this morning. I mean, I can't tell you in the last year how many times my wife and I, Barb and I, have, have just lamented uh, the, the, what we see on the news and, and just the walls seem to be caving in, don't they? We lament this, and we should. But we should find encouragement in the fact that Acts chapter 17, 26 tells us that God determined the time set for us in the exact places we should live. It's no accident that we live in 2022 right here in the United States. We're here for a reason. And it's not to chase after the American dream. It's not to check off list, you know, the list off our, our bucket list. It's to, it's to impact all of eternity. Paul lived with this urgency such that he even saw prison as an opportunity. Here's the fourth command. Verse 6. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. The focus in verse 5 is on our actions, but now here in verse 6, the focus is on our words. And both of these impact our witness, don't they? Let your conversation be always full of grace, Proverbs 10.11, the mouth of the righteous is a well of life. Proverbs 15.1, a gentle answer turns away wrath. Proverbs 25.11, like apples of golds in settings of silver is a word spoken in right circumstances. Paul says, let your conversation be always seasoned with salt. We are the salt of the earth. If you're a follower of King Jesus this morning, if you're born again, you're the salt of the earth, not the bullion cubes of the earth. We're to season the culture around us. Out of the, out of the, I'm sorry, out of the heart, the mouth speaks, Jesus said. What's in our heart? What's really in your heart? If I, if I may press on you a little bit here this morning. What do you act like at work, in your high school, on that college campus? How do you respond to those who don't love Christ? What is in your heart? Well, it's really easy to find out because it'll find its way out of your mouth eventually. Spurgeon said this, he said, there are religious people about, of course, he was talking specifically about Christians. He said, there are religious people about who I have no doubt were born of a woman, but appear to have been suckled by a wolf. May that not be said of us. We are to be winsome, engaging, inviting, gracious, forgiving. Being full of grace, by the way, and seasoned with salt doesn't mean weak or compromising. It doesn't have to mean that at all. 
He says that we should be seasoned with salt, that our conversation be filled with grace so that we may know how to answer everyone. Growing, there's a growing interest today, and there has been for a good 10 or 15 years, maybe longer, in apologetics. You know, 30 years ago, people weren't talking in most local churches about apologetics. It seems like every church is talking about that today, and for good reason, and I'm so grateful for that. In fact, that's what I do. I'm a full-time pro-life apologist. That's what I do is defend the pro-life case. But being a good apologist, or maybe to say it more clearly, being a good ambassador for Christ requires more than having good answers to tough, challenging questions. It requires, it requires us to have an artful method, to be Christ-like in how we share those things. 1 Peter 3.15 says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. That word answer comes from the Greek word apologia, which we translate into the English word apologetics, which doesn't mean I'm sorry. It means a defense or an argument. So we could rightly translate 1 Peter 3.15 to say, always be prepared to give an argument. We're called to be arguers. And we're called to win the argument. How do I know? 2 Corinthians 10.5 tells me so. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of Christ. We want to win the argument, whether it's over abortion or, or homosexuality or whether or not Christ rose from the dead. We want to win the argument. But more than that, we want to win the person behind the argument. And it's entirely possible to win the argument and lose your opponent at the same time. We need to be seasoned. Our conversations need to be seasoned with salt. Peter says this, after saying, always be prepared to give an answer or an argument to everyone who asks you, he says, but do this with gentleness and respect, right? Gentleness and respect. Let me bring this to close in the next several minutes here. I want to I share with you kind of some application, four winsome strategies that have been helpful to me and maybe will be helpful to you in making the most of our conversations, whether those are face-to-face -face live conversations or on social media. Let me give you four of these. Number one, take an honest interest in others. Now, this seems really simple and basic, but it's, it's really a lost art today, even in the body of Christ sometimes. If you want people to be interested in your message, be interested, genuinely interested in them. Ask yourself, am I the kind of person who really takes a genuine interest in other people? Do I ask them questions about their marriages or their singleness? Do I ask them about their children, their work, their dreams, their ambitions? Do you, or am I consumed with talking about myself and my interests? Go out sometime with a friend or a couple or whatever and pay close attention to yourself and at the end of the night ask yourself, how much better do I know this couple or this individual after this evening? Most people are not real good at this. Am I interested only in the opinions of others if they agree with me? Important conversations about Christianity, about politics, about sensitive moral issues depend on trust. And taking an interest in other people helps build this trust and can be established even in brief encounters. In fact, you will find that difficult conversations about moral issues and religious or spiritual issues come much more naturally when we take an honest interest in other people. It allows us to go places in our conversations that we might not otherwise be permitted to go. People are much more inclined to talk about difficult subjects when they know that our care for them is genuine and not a sneaky sales tactic to sort of bait them into the conversation that we really want to have. So develop a healthy curiosity of other people. Ask questions and then let them talk. Now I'm in a unique position, maybe not unique to all of you, but a little bit unique because I travel with work uh, quite often, and I'm frequently on airplanes. And um, 
I'm a nosy guy. I'm just naturally curious about people. And so I'll usually spark up a conversation with the guy or gal next to me. And if I ask enough questions, and no, I'm not like a creeper. I don't like wear them down with 100 questions. But I'll ask a few questions. And oftentimes, they'll ask me one. And that'll open a door. Well, what do you do? Where, do you, where are you going? And it'll open a door. And boy, before you know it, we're talking about the gospel. Now, it doesn't happen all the time. I'm not going to exaggerate it here this morning. But if, we're, if we, we don't have to work too hard to do this if we just take an honest interest in people. So talk about other things. And simply look for natural openings. They'll come. Here's number two. Attack ideas. Don't attack people. We want to demolish the argument, but not the person who's making the argument. Antonin, uh, Antonin Scalia, the former and now late Supreme Court justice, who had a brilliant mind, said this. He said, I attack ideas. I don't attack people. And some very good people have some very bad ideas. And if you can't uh, separate the two, you've got to get another day job. And I think that's well said. That's well said. Maybe you're on social media. And maybe you've seen on Facebook, I'm sure you've seen on Facebook if you are on it, where people will post a meme or maybe a link to a, a debate where a Christian has been debating an atheist. And it will be titled, Christian demolishes or Christian crushes atheist or pro-lifer crushes pro-choicer. And I don't freak out when I see that, but I'm always, I always wince a little bit at that. Because Christ hasn't called us to crush our opponents. He's called us to win them. Or at least do what we can. I mean, ultimately, God's spirit needs to do that work. But he's called us to be winsome, not to crush our opponents, but to crush their arguments. That's different. There's a proverb maybe you've heard, not from the Bible, but an Indian proverb that said, once you've cut off a person's nose, there's no point in giving him a rose to smell. I think that's well said. Destroying arguments, frankly, isn't that difficult. Anybody can memorize right answers to, to challenging questions. But it takes love and skill to destroy an argument without destroying the one who's advancing the argument. Now, Scalia's right. Some very good people have some very bad ideas. But it's equally true that some very bad, idea, uh, some very bad people have some very bad ideas, and they insist on being our enemies. And there's a whole lot of them on college campuses today. Maybe you have noticed. But we should be careful not to make enemies out of others simply because they don't see things the way that we see them. Again, do this with gentleness and respect. So watch your tone. Watch your body language. Care deeply about these things. Find common ground. Let your opponent talk. When I'm on planes and people ask me what I do and I tell them, and sometimes they'll say, so mind if I ask, where do you stand on the subject of abortion? They'll give me their opinion, and I'll just say, well, thanks for that. And I'll just shut up. Now, everything in me wants to lunge. If they're on the other side, I want to dive on that. And sometimes I do. But I try to bite my tongue and just say, oh, thanks. There's nothing wrong with asking somebody's opinion and letting them give it, and then you don't have to fight them. And maybe that'll just bait them to come back more, and you will have an opportunity then. You know, when you think about it, you and I have a miserably unfair advantage with non-Christians. You want to know why? Because we're right and they're wrong. Yes, I know you're not supposed to say that in 2022, but it's true. I'm, and I blame Jesus for that. He's the one that said it, not me. I am the way, the truth, and life, and no man comes to the Father except through me. I just happen to, I'm in the habit of be, believing people who claim to be God and then rise from the dead. I guess that's, call me, call me gullible. But we have a miserably unfair advantage. In a world where people are oftentimes uncharitable and, and ignorant, we show up clothed in Christ. Hopefully knowledgeable about it, what it is that we believe in, seasoned with salt in our conversations and knowing how to answer everyone. So I have a self-imposed rule that maybe you would want to adopt too. I want to treat my opponents in a way with such respect that if they show up to my church this next Sunday and sit next to me, I'll have nothing for which to be embarrassed and nothing, for, nothing to apologize for. Number three, don't be weird. 
Now, if you're not laughing at that point, I'm speaking to you. You're the one who needs this, okay? Don't be socially weird. Once you've got the conversation, don't blow it. Be able to talk about other things besides Christianity or church. John Lennox, some of you maybe know that name. He's a great Christian apologist. He's actually a mathematician at Oxford University. He said, many Christians are monomaniacs. Christianity is all that they can talk about, and they are profoundly boring. Don't be that. Be able to talk about other things. Give people their space. Change the subject with them. In the middle of a conversation about something important, Christianity or some moral issue, change the subject and see if they come back. If they do, you've got license. Keep going with it. If they don't, let them go. Don't force it. Watch your words. When sharing the gospel, we should proclaim it clearly, as Paul writes here in Colossians 4. We shouldn't assume that those with whom we're speaking who don't know Christ understand the language that you and I use. Words like repent. Now, it's not a bad word, and I'm not saying we can't use it, but it needs some definition in this culture. People don't know what that means. Uh, the, the, the word sin. People, we're living in a postmodern culture, a post-Christian culture. A lot of people don't even know what that means. The name of Christ isn't magic. It's not pixie dust. The very name Jesus, we sang about how powerful that name is, and it's true, but it's not pixie dust. Do people, when we use the name Jesus, do they understand who we're talking about? Do, we, do they understand the claims that Christ has made about himself? So don't be weird. Learn to interact with a culture that's lost and, and, and know how to navigate through those conversations. And then finally, whenever it's possible and appropriate, be the one to end the conversation. Now, this is a little bit redundant here, what I've shared with you already, but don't hold people hostage in your conversations. Don't make them sorry that they spoke to you. Don't be that guy or that gal that they run into at Walmart and they're darting around the aisle to get away from you. It's like, oh, no, there she is, that Amway salesman. Sorry if I just offended the Amway crowd here this morning. But <laughs> I've apparently offended some of you. <laughs> Appreciate my last time here at Life Community Church. Um, you know, this, this last point may seem overly simple, but again, be the one to end the conversation. I feel deeply about the gospel. That's, that's my hot button. And if I get into a conversation with somebody who's not a Christian, I could go all night long on it, but I shouldn't do that. Unless they keep coming back for more, I shouldn't do that. I should let them go, especially with people that we have ongoing relationships with, family members, friends, work associates, people we're going to see again. Not some guy on a plane, but people we're going to see again. This is a particularly powerful tool. Because if, you, if people see that they can get away from you, they will be much more apt to come back to you down the road. You're leaving a door open. You're enticing them to come back at some, at some future point. Sometimes the best and the most productive conversations are the ones that we end. Now, if you want a great little, um, I'm going to give you two quick resources. I'm, I'm going to pray, and then uh, we're going to, uh, well, not we, but you're going to, uh, we are going to witness a baptism. But before we do that, let me give you two quick source resources that would be helpful to you. One is a book by Greg Kokel. It's a skinny little book. You can read it in an evening or two. It's called Tactics. Just Tactics. Greg is probably one of the most um, adept evangelists in our culture today at speaking about difficult issues to difficult people in a way that is winsome and gracious. Tactics by Greg Kokel. Another uh, resource would be a video on YouTube by John Lennox, who I just quoted, and it's called Becoming a Winsome Apologist. It is absolutely dynamite. It's about an hour long, a little less than an hour, if I remember correctly. It's one of the most engaging talks I've ever heard about sharing the gospel in a culture like ours. So hopefully those will be beneficial to you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for... 
this time to be together and to dive into your word. Father, we pray that you would fill us with your spirit. Help us not to become harsh and cold like the culture around us, but help us to be loving and gracious, to be winsome in our approach, and yet uncompromising in the truth. Lord, we all fall short of that. And I pray that you would have mercy on us and have a mercy on our, on our listeners, those outsiders who don't know you, that, that our words would be sweet to their souls, that you would draw people to you through, through Christ, through your spirit. And I pray that you'd continue to bless this church as they continue to hold out the word of life in this community. Thank you for them. Amen. Amen. God bless you.